This morning we are continuing our series called TGIF, which stands for Thank God It's Friday, Recovering the Scandal of the Cross. Uh, we felt uh, it would be good this, during this Lent season, the 40 days leading up into Easter weekend, to, to spend more time than we typically spend um, thinking about the cross. You know, we're not just thinking about it on Good Friday, but actually spending the Lent season to intentionally think about uh, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? What does the cross mean? And we started this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and my proposal a couple of weeks ago was that the cross is far more um, expansive. It's far more, there's far more depth there than we often uh, think there is, that it's holistic. And we started by looking at the big picture of the biblical story from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and the problem of sin. That you and I were created in the image of God, uh, that we were created to reflect God and his reign uh, in this world, that something was broken or cracked, that we, the, the Greek word for being in the image of God is acone. Can you guys say acone? And, and so we, we're God's acones. We're actually his image bearers. We were created to rule and to reign with him over, crea- over creation. But we actually gave up that right. We gave up that vocation. And that salvation on the cross is not only what we're saved from, saved from sin, but it's also what we're saved for, that God wants to actually restore us and bring us back into the vocation that he created us for. Now, what is that vocation all about? Well, in the, in the creation story, the four relationships that were severely broken were the relationship between God and man, between man and man, between man and himself, his own identity, his understanding, our understanding of ourselves as God's image bearers, and between man and creation. And that God isn't actually interested in just saving our souls and evacuating them to some uh, utopic spiritual place that we called heaven. God's actually interested in creating a new earth, a new heavens and a new earth, remaking what he's made. He's, he's creation affirming. He is holistic. He wants, to, he wants to bring healing and restoration to every part of our lives. And in some mysterious way, all of that was dealt with at the cross. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the pinnacle point in the Christian story where that problem with, the, our, with us being cracked acones is actually, uh, we, we believe that it's actually come to healing and restoration and God's positioned us to actually take on the vocation which he created us for. So I want to continue on that theme a little bit this week. Um, it's going to feel, if you were here the last few weeks, it's going to feel a little bit um, like you, you went in a couple of different directions. Uh, I had a funeral last week. My, my grandfather passed away. Uh, and so I went to, to Manitoba for the funeral. And Pastor Mark, uh, you know, preached a sermon that he was going to preach this week, last week. So I'm thankful for Mark for doing that. Um, so, so this week, you might uh, feel like you're kind of going backwards a little bit, but, that, but that's okay. Uh, we're going to kind of look at the bigger picture a little bit and then look at one specific uh, metaphor idea of, a, of, a, of atonement, which is the fancy word that we use to describe coming into right relationship with God. When I was at my grandfather's funeral last week, um, we sang a, a song, uh, one of my favorite hymns, uh, The Love of God. Uh, and, and it says, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win his erring child. He reconciled and pardoned from his sin. And then the course was like this. The love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. And then the third verse says, could we with ink the ocean fill 
and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. It's always been one of my favorite hymns. It was powerful to sing that at my grandpa's funeral. And to me, one of the reasons I've always loved this hymn and, and why it had a depth of meaning this past week is because it, it, it tries to touch on the mystery and the depth of the cross without trying to explain it. That, that this, this love of God that is displayed on the cross is actually so vast, so wide, so deep that we don't have enough words, we don't have enough ink, we don't have enough paper to actually write down the depth of what this means. And in the Western world, we, we actually fall victim to trying to explain everything away all the time. This is what the cross means. This is how it happened. Uh, when it was this scandalous mystery and paradox that the original followers of Jesus didn't even know what to do with. That it was something that was so mysterious and transformative, um, it, it, it brought all of the things that were right and wrong with the world into this, uh, into this intersection on the cross and gave meaning and depth and a place of transformation, a place where heaven meets earth. And so as we look at the cross, I, my hope is that we will experience the depth uh, the mystery of the cross, and not just try and explain it away. Uh, some of you maybe don't care about this at all, but I'm just going to throw it in really quick because a couple of people have asked. They say, you know, what, what are your resources when you're teaching on this stuff? What books are you using? And sometimes people care about this stuff, and I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, main two books that I've been looking at, Scott McKnight's A Community Called Atonement, and uh, he writes The Day the Revolution Began. Sprinkled in with some Jürgen Moltmann, Crucified God, More Christ-like God by Brad Jerzak, The Nature of Atonement, uh, which has multiple authors, and re Recovering the Scandal of the Cross, where I stole the title from, uh, from Mark Baker. So I've been busy reading, um, and you might uh, get, a, get a sense of that as we, we go here. But um, uh, if you're interested in, you know, wanting those resources or um, wanting me to send you uh, the info on that, I can do that. Anytime we talk about the cross, we're, we end up talking about paradox. We end up talking about tension. Uh, because there's, there's multiple ideas that, you know, in our human brains sometimes seem at odds that are actually coming together on the cross. And if you actually try and relieve that tension in some way, we miss out on the depth of the meaning of it. When I was younger, we lived in a town outside of, or we lived in a small uh, I don't know, when, not a town, it was a seven house. There's seven houses that kind of lived in a circle out in the country together. I don't even know what it was. Um, but it was about uh, 10 minutes from the, the metropolis of Killarney, Manitoba, uh, where I would move later on in life. But I grew up out there in the middle of nowhere, with, and, uh, which was fun as a little kid. We ran around, and uh, when I was younger, my dad bought a, us a go-kart. And... Uh, I remember just feeling the thrill of being on this machine that just felt like it was way too powerful for the six, seven-year-old kid to actually be behind. Uh, and you just push this gas pedal and it would just like take off and it was, it was exhilarating. And so I remember just ripping around out there in the country on, on our go-kart and I'd hit the ditch multiple times and my dad would have to come and get me out of the ditch and, um, you know, but it, but it was a good time. And so often... When we came home, the garage door would be open, and we would, we would just pull the go-kart into the garage door. 
And this one particular day, I came home, coming into the garage, and um, I went to hit the brake uh, coming into the garage, but I accidentally didn't hit the brake. I hit the gas pedal. Um, and just a little background story before I get to the end of the story. My dad had just bought a brand new road bike. He was going to get into like road riding with some of his friends, uh, like pedal bike. Um, and so he'd saved up money. He got this nice bike. And he got it like within days of this moment. And he put it in the garage, at the end of the garage. And I came in. I hit the gas pedal instead. And I accelerated and just creamed my dad's bike and just mangled it, this brand new bike. Um, and then he came out in the garage, and I'm, I'm going to stop the story there because my dad's going to watch this online, and he's, he's not going to want me to retell that part. Um, but on that go-kart in our vehicles, we have, we have a gas pedal and we have a brake. And these two things, although they're completely different, they serve completely different purposes, they are necessary for the vehicle to do what it was supposed to do. If you had a vehicle that just had a gas pedal, we'd be in trouble. If you had a vehicle that just had a brake, well, I don't think it's technically a vehicle, right? It's, it's a couch with a steering wheel. Uh, so so th this, I want to bring this idea of tension and paradox into the cross, that we actually need different parts to bring depth to the meaning of the cross that at, at times doesn't quite fit in our finite brains. First of which is the idea of salvation, which is what, which is what the cross is all about. Uh, and the word salvation is the Greek word sozo. You guys say sozo? That's, we have a sozo ministry here, and that's where the name of our, that ministry comes from, salvation. And uh, there's, there's multiple uh, meanings behind this word. Um, being rescue, uh, being saved from death, bringing out, of sa safe, uh, bringing out safely, healing, to keep something, to preserve something. These are all meanings behind the word, word of salvation or the word sozo. And then salvation didn't just happen on the cross 2,000 years ago. And as you'll see in the slide on Romans 8, 24, it says that we were given this hope when we were saved. So, so this... Paul here describes the past event of salvation, that something happened in the past that we were saved because of what Jesus did on the cross. It happened. It was complete. But we also see that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that it's something that is happening. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. We who are being saved... Salvation is actually an ongoing thing that was inaugurated or initiated 2,000 years ago on the cross. And then thirdly, Paul says, wake up for our salvation is nearer now than when we, fought, than when we first believed. So not only has salvation happened 2,000 years ago, it happened and it was done and we've been saved because of what Jesus did. Not only are we being saved because of what Jesus has done, but we're awaiting a salvation that's yet to happen where God is ultimately going to rescue us. And if we remove any, any part of that tension or that depth when we think about salvation, what happened on the cross, we actually miss the scope of what, what it's accomplished. We often use the term saved, you know, I was saved 
because of what Jesus has done, and that's true. But you and I both know in our experience that we're also being saved. Right? If I were to ask you, so, you know, you got no, you know, nothing, uh, no issues in your life that you think need some healing or some fixing or some restoring or no relationship that you're reconciling, well, yeah, I, I guess I do. And so we recognize in our experience that salvation is something that we still need to experience. We also recognize that our world is broken and that God is ultimately going to do something in history when he returns to restore it. Uh, and we're awaiting a final salvation, so to speak. And so all of these things are present in the concept of salvation. It's present in Jesus on the cross. And it's a tension that we can't let go of. So not only does Paul kind of address this, this tension, he brings in all these metaphors to talk about the cross. And a metaphor is seeing one thing as something else, pretending this is that, because we do not know how to think about this or that. So we use that as a way about talking about this. Does that make sense? So if you talk to children, you'll understand this. You're trying to explain a concept that they don't quite understand, and so you talk it down to their level, maybe in their world, using a TV show or something that they might learn at school in a way that they'll understand. So you talk about that by talking about this. And when we're dealing with that thing that is so broad, so vast, so big, we actually can't even begin to talk about it without talking about it in a metaphor. Does that make sense? If this eternal creator God is doing this vast, huge thing that we have trouble wrapping our heads around, and the only way we can actually begin to grasp it and see glimpses of what actually happened is to use metaphors to describe it. And let me be clear here, a metaphor does not mean that something isn't true. In fact, a metaphor produces new possibilities of imagination and vision. You know, in the Western world, we often think of, you know, scientific uh, data and facts as describing something that's true, and we've lost an appreciation for narrative and story and metaphor to actually reveal truth to us. Um, the Eastern world knew this very well, that metaphor creates possibilities and a, a way to reimagine and revision something that we haven't seen before. Narrative creates new configurations which structure individual or a corporate experience. And so when we think about the cross, Paul's metaphors are trying to unlock for us uh, this vastness of the cross. Mark talked about a couple of those metaphors last week, which we'll, we'll re revisit in a second. Uh, theologians, both in the Bible and after the Bible, have come up with five big metaphors of atonement that you'll see repeated through Scripture. And there's more than that, uh, but there's, there's five major, major ones which we're, we're going to look at. And atonement metaphors create a story with the beginning, with God, created us, God creating us as image bearers, as acones, and with an end, restoring us, glor um, bringing us back into fellowship with Him, Him being glorified, us worship, the whole creation worshiping God. And, they, and, and these metaphors bring uh, the, the conflict in the story, us being cracked acorns, these broken four relationships um, into the center and, and trying to describe how the healing or restoration of, of the, that brokenness has, has occurred. So I'm going to skip a few rocks over the whole Bible uh, and, and touch base on these metaphors really quickly. Uh, the first is a relational metaphor. Jesus' death has made reconciliation between humanity and God possible. 
I'll see some scripture references there. We're not going to, we don't have time to dive into the uh, detail of each of these uh, right now. Uh, but you'll see this relational metaphor that's being described in the language of reconciliation, that Jesus bore the shame that our sin introduced into the divine human relationship. And this responds to the human experience of estrangement or alienation. How, how many of you guys have ever felt alienated from God or from other people? Anybody? So when, when Paul gets into these relational metaphors, he's, again, he's describing something that's true, but he's trying to say it in a way to help us reimagine it in a depth that we, we can't quite grasp. That in some mysterious way, the cross has answered the question or the issue of alienation and estrangement from others and from God and from ourselves. Two, economic metaphor. Our salvation has been purchased through Christ's death. And you'll see this type of language repeatedly uh, in Paul. The key, key experience that Paul is addressing is bondage. So we're, we're, we, there's a price to pay that we can't, uh, there's something we owe that we can't pay. And Jesus had paid that price. He's released us um, and set us free in that economic sense. Anybody been economically strapped or in a position where you can't get yourself out of? Less people putting up their hands. Don't want to be quite that vulnerable. But, but Paul uses this language to describe the, the situation that we find ourselves in that the cross responds to. Uh, third, a worship sacrifice metaphor. We'll, we'll, you'll see this often. Jesus' death was a sacrifice offered to God on the behalf of sinful humanity, which has its background in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus himself has become the sacrifice and has, in, in that way, restored relationship uh, between us and God. For a military metaphor, this is uh, one that Mark went in depth um, with last week in specifically. Jesus' death represents a victory over the powers of evil. All the at the cross, Jesus absorbed the weight of human sin and the powers of evil and triumphed over them in love. And so the key human experience um, is affliction, oppression. Anybody ever feel afflicted or oppressed? I know I'm talking to middle, upper class Calgarians here. Um, but there are moments in our lives where we feel afflicted or oppressed. There's moments... Um, when we think of this week, we have a, that group that's gone down to Mexico that they are going to be shoulder to shoulder with people that feel affliction and oppression and they're stuck in a place that they actually can't get themselves out of. And at the cross, in some vast, mysterious way, Jesus has actually brought liberation for the oppressed and the afflicted. And then fifth, We'll see a legal metaphor, which we'll talk more about next week. That Jesus' death was the means by which God judged sin and offered humanity forgiveness. He's removed guilt or remorse. Anybody ever felt guilty? You just had this hunch that you did something wrong. You felt guilty because of how you've either, um, you know, offended or turned your back on God or other people. And in some mysterious, vast way, the cross has actually dealt with the issue of guilt. So I want to talk to you a little bit about my golf game, if that's okay. Um, 
I got my golf clubs here. You're probably wondering what these clubs were doing uh, on the stage. And I was, I was debating whether or not I should swing these clubs here, but there's too many instruments that I, I think that would be, that'd be a bad idea. Um, I, I kind of like the game of golf. Um, there's moments where I like it. Any, anybody with me on that one? Um, there's times where I'm just like, I can't wait to golf again. And there's, there's other times, uh, if you've golfed with me, you know, um, where my clubs are going farther than the ball. Uh, and I never want to play this game again. So um, I've always been around the game of golf, and I never really got into it. My brother was always really good at it. Uh, and part of my personality, if I can't be really good at something, then I don't want to do it. And golf was just number, never one of those things that I couldn't really do very well. So I didn't do it for a long time. And then, uh, you know, five or six years ago, I decided, you know what, I want to try and get good at golf. Um, you know, I'd, I'd get invited to go out enough, and I'd go on these pastor golf tournaments, and I was always the worst, you know, I'd be put in a foursome, and I was always the worst of the four people out there. Uh, I remember one of the early ones um, that I went on where you had to use so many drives from, you know, the best ball tournaments, you had to use so many drives from a certain player. Uh, we were on hole, we had three holes left, so we were on hole uh, 16, and we still had three of my drives uh, to use. And we were, we were doing okay as a team until we actually had to start using my shots. And then we didn't do so well. So that's kind of the history of my golf game. Um, and I had, I had clubs. Every one of my clubs, um, regardless of which one it was, I could hit about, if I hit it in the air, I could hit it about 150 yards. Uh, you know, so, you know, when people are, are asking, you know, what's your... Uh, you know, take out your 150-yard club for the shot. I was like, well, which one do you want? My driver, my putter, my... Uh, I hit them all about 150 yards. And uh, so apparently good golfers, they, they get to know their club so well that they get to a part of the course. It's like, well, this is your, you know, 180-yard club. Or, you know, pull your driver and, you know, you know 250 yards. You want to land it right there in the middle. Um, and I hear them talk like this. I was like, well, that might be nice. I just, if it's, if I can hit it in the air, it'll go 150. If I hit it on the ground, it'll roll for about 80. Um, and that was kind of my golf game. Eventually, I took some golf lessons, and I did, in, I did improve my golf game by about 30 strokes. Um, that tells you how bad it was, not how good I am. And, and I started to get to a place where I could actually recognize which clubs I had to use in which situations they sometimes did what they were supposed to do. The metaphors that Paul uses in Scripture to describe the cross, I believe, are like golf clubs. They, there's different situations that happen in the course of life that require different metaphors to describe to us what the cross means for us in that moment. And if you look through history at the different times and. and uh, and these have become to be called atonement theories, um, these different metaphors. But throughout history, at certain times in history, certain metaphors or atonement theories have actually been um, elevated and said, you know, this is what the cross has accomplished. You know, for the first, hundred year, first couple hundred years of the church history, it was one metaphor, and then eventually it became another one, the Christus Victor one that, that Mark talked about last week. Next week, we'll talk about the main one that's kind of driving uh, the Western church world right now. And, and all of these metaphors are true and they're valuable, but the problem becomes when we think that we can play a whole golf game with our driver, 
I mean, I know there's some people that, that maybe can do that better than others. Um, but different metaphors are necessary for different moments in history, different moments in our lives. There's moments where you feel guilt. There's moments where you feel oppressed. There's moments where you feel afflicted, where something's not right between you and others or you and God. There's moments where you feel like you just can't make up for a debt that you owe. And, and there's different metaphors that describe the human experience. And it's important that we recognize the whole set of clubs that God has actually given us to respond to the course of life. And what I'm suggesting in the first se- sermon in the series and this, uh, and this current sermon is that there's a golf bag, that there's a certain narrative or framework that we must understand the biblical story in or else we're going to miss the depth and the meaning of the cross. And so I would say this, the biblical narrative I talked about the first week and this idea of paradox and tension, um, and I'm going to talk specifically in a second about uh, that paradox and tension in, in the dual nature of Christ, the God, the God man, that these things are completely necessary if we want to actually have a bag that holds the different metaphors without it going sideways one way, one way or another. Because the truth is, if we make one of these metaphors the main thing that the cross means, we'll stretch that metaphor too far and we will miss actually what, the, what, what God has accomplished through Christ on the cross. We doing okay? I can't see you, so just, just give a yell. Are we doing okay? <laughs> All right. I know this is a little bit heavy, but I, I hope that you can see um, beyond the ideas of this and how this actually becomes very personal very quickly. And so just in review, the metaphors themselves, when, we, when Paul uses the idea of metaphor, he's actually um, also addressing a problem, right? So a metaphor of relationship would connotate a problem of alienation or estrangement, and the solution is a reconciliation that's on the cross. An economic metaphor that Paul uses would talk about us being enslaved, um, and there's a solution that Jesus has come to ransom or liberate us, which Mark also addressed last week. Worship metaphor, that there's, a, that there's, this, there's this guilt, this human impurity between us and God that separates us, and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross becomes the solution to that problem. The military metaphor, that there's very real evil in this world, and the, and the cross is the place of victory and conquest that overcomes evil. And that's one of the paradoxes that we actually can't lose, that victory is actually found through crucifixion. Um, the legal image responds to the guilt that we have. And so, um, so the solution is the forgiveness of sins. And so this is the whole golf bag that, that, is, that is meant to carry um, these different metaphors. So after the crucifixion, early church fathers, church leaders, they didn't try and explain what the cross did. If you went and asked them, he's like, so how did this work? How did Jesus exactly pay for our sins? How did, you know, what does it mean that he died for us? They would just know that this God-man Jesus did something in this moment that changed everything. And they were okay to actually sit in that mystery. And so the first atonement idea, the first theory, so to speak, that came out of church history is called the recapitulation theory. Say recapitulation. Recapitulation. Um, 
Irenaeus introduced this. And recapitulation is just a fancy word. It's an act or an instance of summarizing and restating the main points of something. So the, the basic concept was that Jesus recapitulated, that Jesus represented, that Jesus summarized the whole experience of humanity in himself. That Jesus is the full acorn to go back to that idea. He's, he's truly the human that represents uh, God, that is made in God's image, that is living out the vocation uh, which humans were created to live out. He was, if Adam was our old representative, then Jesus is our new one. And this is seen in uh, Philippians 2. Uh, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. This is called the incarnation, that God took on flesh. That's where, where we get the, 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 the Spanish word, uh, carne asada. Sorry, I gotta, I'm in Mexico, mind. I'm not in Mexico. I'm usually in Mexico right now eating tacos. Um, carne asada, meat, flesh. That Jesus took on, that God took on flesh in the, in the form of Jesus. The incarnation. So, in Romans 5, which we, again, don't have time to read, you'll see this comparison between Adam and Jesus. That Adam used to represent humanity, this old creation, but Jesus represents a new humanity and a new creation. Adam sinned and Christ is sinless. Adam disobeyed, Christ obeyed. Sin enters our world through Adam. Grace enters our world through Jesus. Adam dies Christ dies to end fallen humanity and then is resurrected to start new humanity. Adam stays dead. Christ resurrected. Adam ushers in era of this enmity between humans and God and humans and each other. And Christ ushers in an era of life and unity. The old creation with Adam, the new creation with Jesus. Adam describes what we are. In Jesus, we actually see what we can become. And so Irenaeus basically understood that Jesus was fully human, that Adam was our old model, our old representative, that Jesus is our new one, and he has actually started a new creation. Not only did, is this idea for individuals, but it's also corporately. Uh, many early Christians viewed Jesus as fulfilling what Israel was unable to do as well. So you know the story that Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, right? So that, that was a reenactment of um, the 40 years that the, the Israelites spent in the wilderness as well. And there's multiple times like that in the Gospels where we see Jesus reenacting parts of Israel's history. So in Jesus is this reenactment this representing Israel and humanity in a way that they weren't able to do in the past. He's living out perfectly what we, in, what we couldn't live out perfectly ourselves. We see this idea of recapitulation uh, in Paul's letters when he uses the term in Christ, which if, if you read through his letters, you'll, you'll read it all over the place. Redemption in Christ. 
Death and life in Christ. God's love, you say in Christ. Unity, ministry, reconciliation of the world, freedom, justification, universal redemption, blessings. Lots of big words, lots of big concepts, but, but, but Paul is trying to get to how deep and significant this experience of the cross was. And he's saying the only way that, this, that these things become a reality for you is if you are in Christ. Because in Christ is the new creation. In Christ is where the new creation out of this new Adam comes from. Where the old order of things that was the old Adam dies. So as, as people pondered the idea of God becoming fully man and the mystery of it, they started to struggle, struggle with the tension. They started to try and figure out how do the gas pedal and the brake work together. And many of them decided to actually lay aside the deity of Jesus, the godness of Jesus, in order to embrace the humanness of Jesus because that tension was just too weird for them to wrap their heads around. So they started coming with the idea, well, Jesus is fully human and he was just completely full of the Holy Spirit. And that kind of went back and forth. And eventually people started um, saying that Jesus was completely God and that everything you saw was just um, a facade, a mask. But there was no humanity behind that mask. They didn't know how to deal with the tension. They didn't know how the gas pedal and the brake were actually supposed to work together. And so in church history, you'll recognize in the first kind of 500 years after Christ, there was multiple councils that really were all about defending these biblical and sacred tensions. Because the early church fathers knew that if you actually did away with the deity of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus, whatever happened on the cross would be lost. The paradox needs to stay. And so not only was Jesus fully man, not only did he fully represent humans, not only did he fully represent uh, Israel, all of humanity, he fully represented God. In Colossians 1, 15, 19 to 20, or 15, and then I'll read 19 to 20, it says, Christ, in the visible, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For God in all his what? Fullness was pleased to live in Christ. So not only are we in Christ, God is in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. It's a great mystery. If I were to, if I were to try and explain to you what that means, whatever I say would fall short. I have my best guesses. Um, but Paul is tapping into this great mystery. In Hebrews 1 to 3, the author says this, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. If you don't hold the two in tension, you either reject the divinity of Christ or we end up making ourselves God. And if you remember the first week of the series, we talked about the importance of uh, the hierarchy that God created us for. And Jesus puts that hierarchy back into place. That Jesus helps us recognize who we are, but he also helps us recognize who God is and puts those things back in place. 
The common understanding of God in that time, in that culture, could be summarized in the God of Zeus. That's a modern caricature of Zeus. Um, but if you look at pictures of Zeus, statues of Zeus, you will recognize that he often has a thunderbolt or a weapon in his hand, and he's pointing with his other finger. This all-powerful God, this thunder God, who ruled over all the other gods, who could conquer anybody, anything, whenever he wanted. He was not conquerable. He, was a, he wasn't a God who could bend. He was not a God who could suffer. Or if he suffered, he would cease to be the God that he was supposed to be. This ultimate thunder God, powerful God. Looking for somebody to throw a lightning bolt at. And so people lived in fear of this God. Anybody grow up with an idea of God that looked a lot like Zeus? That God, all-powerful, almighty, was not conquerable, was out to get people who weren't living right and doing bad things. And sometimes he would just get people even when they hadn't done bad things. Had a finger pointing, lightning bolt ready to roll at any moment. This was the concept of God in the first century. And many of us still carry the same concept of God. But the paradox of the cross, which we cannot lose, is that when we look on the cross, we actually see God. When we emphasize Jesus' humanity, it's, in some ways it almost makes the cross, it helps us to be okay with the cross or to, you know, it makes a bit more sense to us in our minds. But then we miss the scandal of the cross. The scandal of the cross is a crucified God. The cross is deicide. The creator himself being murdered by his own creation. Jesus is perfect theology. What does theology mean? What we think about God, how we study God, how we understand God. Every one of us does theology. If you have an opinion about who God is, you do theology. Jesus is perfect theology. What do I mean by that? That Jesus, in Jesus, is the fullness of God. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. The nature of God was mysterious for years. And it's still mysterious. But in the moment of the crucifixion, the nature of God became more clear than it had ever been at any point in history. In the moment of the cross, we see that God suffers. In what, to, what seems to be the total absence of God, we learn the mystery of God's inescapable presence. There's a paradox, there's a mystery on the cross. We observe the most horrific act in history. We see a God who would rather die than a God who would kill his enemies. Even though it looks like a moment of failure, it's actually a moment of victory. 
Victory for the afflicted, forgiveness for the guilty, liberation for the enslaved. To the sick, Jesus becomes a healer. To the sinner, Jesus is a forgiver. To the fallen and the broken, he's a restorer. To the oppressed, he becomes a liberator. Jesus is the God-man. He represents us to God, and he represents God to us. This is the paradox. Any metaphor or understanding of the cross that actually removes the deity of Jesus will miss the scandal of the cross. This is the tension that our church fathers spent hundreds of years protecting and articulating, and it's the tension that we too must embrace today. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite the worship team on stage. As we end, I want to go back to this slide that I showed earlier. And I would ask the question as we worship and as we ponder what the cross means. Are any of you experiencing alienation, estrangement from other people in your lives? From God himself? Uh, Any feelings of rejection or things that have happened in a relationship that just seem irreconcilable? The cross is actually the place where those things become reconciled. Any of you have experienced being enslaved, being caught in addiction, being in a place of you're not even in control anymore, that you have no way of getting out, the cross actually becomes the place of liberation. And if you feel like there's actually nothing you could give to God uh, that would make you right with God, you're absolutely right in that. And that's why Jesus is the perfect sacrifice on the cross. It's actually more about surrendering than it is about trying to be perfect, recognizing that Jesus is perfect. And so on the cross, he becomes that perfect sacrifice, making a way for us to know God in a way that we have never known him before. Have any of you ever felt oppressed? That there is evil that's oppressing you, that you feel this heaviness, that this darkness that you just can't escape from? Well, on the cross, Jesus actually brings us light. He brings us hope. He brings us victory. And yes, it's a victory that's happened in the past, and yes, it's a victory that's continuing to happen, but it's also a victory that we're still waiting for, this past, present, future paradox that we see in the cross. Or guilt. Maybe some of you this morning are carrying guilt. Guilt because of something you've done. Guilt because of something that you haven't done that you, sh- that you know you should have done. On the cross, we see not a God who's like Zeus with his finger pointing at you and a lightning rod ready to get you, but a, Jesus, but a God who takes the posture of Jesus on the cross like this. God's not against you. And on the cross, we see this mystery that we, all of our sins were actually sinned into Jesus. And he removes any sense of guilt that we have because he offers forgiveness to all. 
So my invitation this morning is just to come to the cross, to come to Jesus. Recognize that Jesus represents exactly what God is like. And Jesus also represents to you what he's calling you to be like. Let's worship.